Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Over the past week or so, the Pentagon has disclosed the new strategy to advance the nation's hypersonic weapons industry. It's held a senior level forum with executives on batteries and critical minerals. And the Defense Innovation Unit has come up with a new wearable that can improve DOD's health tracking, including for viruses like COVID. Joining us now to discuss all this and more is an old friend, a veteran naval strategist, Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner, who is now the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Uh, He is also the co-author of two important reports, Unalone and Unafraid, Improving the Navy's Process. Uh, and Organization for Developing and Fielding Uncrewed Vehicles and Mission Systems, and the other, Fighting into the Bastion, Sustaining the U.S. Undersea Advantage. Uh, Brian co-authored both of these uh, terrific reports with uh, none other than his co-conspirator on all of this, Dan (laughs) Pat. Uh, Brian, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Vago. It's great to be here. Uh, And before we get started, uh, as I mentioned, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS, and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Brian, I want to start off first with uh, hypersonics. That's a topic that you've written uh, a lot uh, about. I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, General Neil Thurgood, the former uh, chief of the uh, Army's uh, hypersonic program to field a strategic level uh, hypersonic weapons, would always tell you that the hardest part about this is, you know, the great thing is we did it in a short period of time. The more impressive thing was to set up an industrial base to actually produce at scale. And indeed, we've seen both the Army and the Navy uh, order uh, these uh, weapons. Obviously, it's a joint program. Talk to us a little bit about what DOD announced last week and what you thought was so interesting about it. So both services are are working together on the uh, prompt global strike weapon. So basically a boost glide hypersonic weapon that would be launched from Navy submarines, uh, Virginia class, or from Army um, transport or erector launchers, so ground-based launchers. Um, and uh, you know they're both pursuing a uh, common set of uh, booster components and then a common glide vehicle that would be deployed by these these missiles. The um, you know so the interesting thing is that last week the uh, administration um, made a significant investment in the industrial base to support hypersonic weapons in general, but in particular to support these kinds of weapons. Uh, and it's focused on the kinds of materials you need to be able to build the glide vehicle, um, the nose cone. The, the front end pieces of any hypersonic weapon uh, because they have to travel at these uh, speeds in excess of Mach 5, generates obviously a lot of heat, um, creates a very difficult set of conditions for any material to survive in. Uh, in particular, there's a plasma uh, that's formed uh, as the hypersonic weapon goes through the atmosphere. So you've got a, a highly charged uh, gas that forms uh, at the nose cone. Um, it's not something that you know most of our uh, defense materials uh, do well in. Um, and in particular, we have to think about if we wanna put seekers or other guidance systems into these into the front ends of these hypersonic weapons. We need a material that might be transparent, you know, to those to a radar or to to some kind of other seeker, which means you need some kind of composite rather than having a metal uh, front end of the of the missile. So what these investments are intended to do is help build out the industrial base so that we can build uh, in volume 
uh, the kinds of composite materials that you need for the front ends of hypersonic weapons. These materials might also be very useful for air breathing hypersonic weapons, which are likely to be uh, even a much larger or the predominant component of the U U.S. hypersonic uh, portfolio. So this investment is supposed to play out you know, through multiple lines of weapons that all demand uh, these high temperature composites that draw upon industrial waste that doesn't really exist today. Are you satisfied with the level uh, of investment and does it get us to where we need to be as quickly as we need to get there. It's not as much as we would need. I guess what the investment, which is you know on the on the scale of tens of millions of dollars, so it doesn't seem like a lot of money. Um, but we're also we're talking about a, a relatively nascent capability area. So uh, the Navy um, and the uh, Army, though the DoD together, is going to order about twenty four of these missiles in the FY twenty four budget. So we're talking still relatively small scale of uh, investment in terms of just the numbers of weapons, um, and that'll pick up over time, especially as air breathing weapons like uh, the Hackam which is the Air Force's current uh, air-breathing hypersonic weapon, you know, comes into the uh, comes out of the R&D process and into procurement. So we'll, then we'll be looking at potentially hundreds of hypersonic weapons being fielded in the next five to 10 years. So this investment is really the good, a good starting point. So I would argue that it probably is an appropriate level of investment at this point uh, because the demand just isn't there yet. Um, but the, the idea would be that you make this investment, the industry is making an investment as well, there will be continued investment on the part of the government as procurement starts to pick up, and then that will cause the industrial base to grow. Um, and this is really supposed to jumpstart uh, an investment that doesn't yet have a demand signal or a strong demand signal. Uh, it, it's all about the demand signal, right? It, it doesn't right. matter if you've built a better mousetrap if nobody wants to buy it, uh, which unfortunately right. tends to be our uh, characteristic. Um, right. And in, right. And for the defense industry, the challenge is, um, you know, the demand signal is coming. Uh, and then when the government wants it, they want it now. Uh, and if you haven't right. made those investments in the industrial base, you can't you know, meet the demand in any reasonable period of time. So these investments by the government are intended to jumpstart that capacity so that it's closer to being ready when the government wants it to be ready. You know, from a technological needle moving standpoint, right, a lot of the department's uh, um, disclosures and initiatives, you know, whether it was the, you know, there have been chips and batteries and mm -hmm. AI events, um, you know, I think uh, just yesterday, uh, the Pentagon announced, you know, the Defense Information Systems Agency uh, and the Defense uh, and the Department of Defense's Information Network are looking ways to, you know, and I'm, this is directly from what the department issued to repurpose cutting edge technology like artificial intelligence, development, security and operations, right? DevSecOps, zero trust assets to protect uh, DOD's global uh, network. And that was announced by Air Force uh, right. Lieutenant General uh, uh, Robert Skinner, who's the DISA uh, director. From, from your standpoint, Right. You know, we were talking about sort of the acquisition process and everybody is looking for new authorities. I mean, once upon a time, if if Clark Industries came up with a better mousetrap, <laughs> they would just buy Clark Industries mousetrap. Right. Whereas right. now we study Clark Industries mousetrap. We tell everybody what we want. And then Meridian Industries ends up winning it, who's not particularly good or may not be as as good, but maybe has deeper pockets and can buy into it. I'm not judging anybody. <laughs> you know, the department keeps talking more and more. Right. I mean, the DIU announcement was about the adoption of actually commercial technology repurposed to solve a mission. From your right. standpoint, from a fundamental technological standpoint, is the department actually moving as quickly as it needs to move? Because if you're a commercial company, you need to move at some relevant scale, not sort of shoot for a program DOD might have 12 years from now. Right. And DOD is not. And so you know, DOD is a terrible customer if you're a commercial company because they 
uh, the contracting process is what people normally complain about, but that's actually not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is just the DOD is not a big enough customer at the kind of scale, um, and they're not able to make a decision. Contracting aside, they're not able to make a decision uh, you know, in a short enough time for a commercial company to find it as a you know good customer. So if you're making uh, a commercial product um, and, uh, you know, for example, you're making network equipment and you are trying to offer that to DOD, uh, DOD is going to take forever to decide, you know, what's its strategy? How's it going to fit into the rest of the system of systems that they've got? You know, it'll take forever for that to happen. Um, whereas you can go to a commercial customer and offer that service right away uh, and they'll pull the trigger on it and you can begin, you know, fielding it. Even if what you're fielding is not the best final answer. It's going to be better than what the company has, and they're going to, you know, modify it and evolve it over time. You know, DoD is not willing to take that approach of modifying and evolving over time to get to the eventual, you know, goal that you want to have. Um, they want the final end product now. Um, so I think that that idea of an iterative process for um, going from what's available today and on the shelf to what you want in the future is something that DOD is going to have to get better at. And you're seeing some examples of that in the unmanned vehicle world, you know, examples like we see with Task Force 59 uh, in the Middle East, where the Navy is getting commercial off the shelf unmanned systems, using them in operational settings, uh, trying to modify them and improve them over time. And then, you know, looking for ways to help the company identify how they need to put their own investment to work in terms of improving those systems. So that partnership type of relationship is what DOD needs to be pursuing more of. And DIU is supposed to be offering that clearinghouse to make those kinds of relationships happen. But that's really what it has to be is the, the DOD has to be willing, like commercial customers, to iteratively improve uh, a product as opposed to getting the final product uh, once and then never going back to it. I, I want to uh, take you uh, to a meeting uh, that the Deputy Defense Secretary, Dr. Kathix, uh, had uh, last week uh, with both uh, battery and, and critical minerals uh, producers. Uh, obviously, both of these are on the focus of the department. It's a little bit like, well, like semiconductors, right? What are the capabilities and technologies we've got to get, do a better job at? From your standpoint, how important are engagement efforts like this? She, I think, met uh, with uh, leading lithium-ion battery as well right. as uh, critical mineral companies. What's what, from your standpoint? Are engagements like this more optical, more messaging, or do you believe that they generate actually tangible outcomes? I think they're more optical. I mean, it's important to show that this isn't something that the department cares about. Um, the challenge is, you know, DOD doesn't buy these minerals directly, right? So DOD has to work through multiple layers of the supply chain to eventually reach the uh, companies that are, you know, mining and processing these materials. Um, and they, so the idea is that, you know, the DOD is mostly just wanting to be you know, seen as caring about this in terms of the supply chain, that this is an extremely low tier on the supply chain and that we are worried about it uh, and we're paying attention to it. Um, the government has made some investments, you know, that, that go down to those levels of the supply chain. So actually, you know, paying, you know, for capacity to be generated um, amongst uh, the, the, the manufacturers, mostly the processors of these critical minerals. Um, you know, but DOD, again, needs to be you know, a better customer for the end product. Uh, and that's where you tend to be able to drive that investment all the way down the supply chain um, and things like, you know, CRs, as, as we've talked about many times. Um, but more importantly, things like, um, you know, taking too long in, in sort of analyzing uh, requirements until you arrive at the, you know, the perfect answer. 
um, will tend to delay um, the delivery of products and tends to then create ripple effects throughout the supply chain where it may be okay for a prime like a Lockheed Martin to you know, handle while the government dithers making a decision about how they want to proceed on a new set of systems. But if you're the third tier supplier or you're some critical mineral provider to a battery manufacturer that provides something that, to that unmanned vehicle builder who's a prime, you're getting whipsawed by that supply chain impact. And so it's really important for the government to think about the fact that, you know, being a good customer, you know, buying things, um, you know, on, at scale, you know, at a, at a, at a tempo that um, maybe is less than comfortable for the government, but makes the supply chain healthier might be the way to go. So part of what we have to do here is, is just think about buying things in a way that better supports the supply chain, um, as opposed to buying things that are, you know, exactly what the government wanted as a customer. Does it matter? I, I know the answer to this, but I thought I would ask, right? I mean, just about everybody gets, I mean, where there was only one rare earths um, company in the United States, obviously it's a highly toxic material. Uh, a series of challenges, you know, when you the processing of it is problematic. The mining of it is problematic, right? Um, although right. we do process in the United States uh, a bit, right? But does it really matter if some of this stuff is coming from China in the near term? Because just about everybody's batteries depend on stuff that comes from outside the United States. And many of them are coming from other nations. You know, if you're lucky, it's coming from Japan. If you're unlucky, it might be coming from China. I mean, the scale right. of what needs to be done is is massive, right? Yeah, it is, and and the, you know it's it's extremely challenging, right? Because you know um, some of these minerals are not available in large amounts in the United States. Some of them are, so you know, their rare earths are available in the United States. Um, cobalt is an ava is available in uh, U.S. allies like Canada. Um, so there's a there you can these minerals and and um, and materials are available from friendly countries um, or from the United States. It's just a matter of you know are those countries willing to countenance the you know, industrial base and the processing that's necessary to bring them to market. Um, and that might be where investment is needed to do it in a, as clean a manner as possible, which means you've got to be willing to pay more. Um, and maybe that's where things like the DPA um, and some of the direct investments that the government could make would co come into play. So when we talk about friend shoring, some of these critical mineral supply chains, um, we're going to need to be willing to make direct investments to allow companies to build facilities in friendly countries that are environmentally safe, which is going to be a more expensive proposition than what's probably existing in the supply chain today. Um, and that's what I think that's one of the things that Secretary Hicks was trying to ascertain in the discussions she had with these uh, mineral and, and battery manufacturers is exactly, you know, how fragile is the supply chain? To what degree are we dependent upon unfriendly countries? What would it take to move these industries, you know, towards friendlier nations um, to do it in, in a way, way that these countries will be willing to host? Uh, in, in, indeed, and I wish her all the luck in that uh, endeavor. I mean, it was interesting that sort of uh, the biggest name that a lot of people in our industry would understand is General Motors Defense, and it's in part because of uh, the enormous investment the company has made in battery uh, technologies and the push to expand the defense uh, market pace, whereas the other ones were like Eagle, uh, Pitcher, Rentronics, right. uh, and a number right. of, of others, if uh, memory uh, serves correctly. Uh, let me take you to uh, your unmanned systems, uh, as well as your undersea warfare uh, reports. Both of them are utterly uh, terrific. I want to start with unmanned systems. This is something that uh, the Navy has been grappling with uh, for uh, some time. And in this case, we're going to delve a little bit into Navy, uh, into Navy territory. Um, even though the Navy was uh, a pioneer in unmanned systems, some of the adoptions of these capabilities have moved a little more slowly, I think, than everybody would have appreciated, would, would have liked to see. 
whether on the undersea yeah. level, and we're going to talk about undersea right. warfare in a minute, but as well as uh, sea surface uh, and, and, and others. Um, from your perspective, where is the Navy now? And what are the most important things it has to do? Because the point you make is you need a more flexible architecture, take a systems of systems approach. You don't have to be you know, winning the marathon at the start of the race, right? Walk right. us through where the service is now and what are the things that it needs to do? Because I also think that it's interesting that you, you, you put them as mission threads, not necessarily capabilities, right? If you change how you right. think about it, you might get a better outcome. Right. Yeah. So, um, Vago, we, so the Navy is actually, I think, doing a lot better over the last year in terms of how it thinks about fielding unmanned systems. Um, so it used to be the Navy's original approach was essentially to build unmanned systems that more or less duplicated uh, a mission that a manned platform would do and doing it in more or less the same way as the manned platform. So the large unmanned surface vessel is going to be a missile launcher in the same way that a DDG would. Um, it's going to have the same missile launchers. It'll go just as fast. It has to go just as long. Uh, it has to be, you know, able to protect itself to some degree. It's got to have a lot of the characteristics of a DDG. It just only is focused on, you know, one mission, which is launching missiles, um, which makes it really that that's a challenging set of requirements to meet, right? So if you want to have a, a large unmanned vessel that's going to be able to go for weeks at a time without a human interacting with it, um, and also be able to maybe protect itself from, from potentially being hijacked, um, and then also be able to go fast enough to keep up with the SAG or a strike group. That's a challenging uh, you know, set of mechanical and um, you know, command and control capabilities. And they've had difficulty with achieving that. Um, if instead you take a page from commercial robotics and how the commercial world has used robotics, um, and most of the time, as you see in like in Amazon warehouses, they buy the robots that are available today. They don't try to build a robot that mimics what a human does. They buy the robots that are out and in the force or out on the, on the shelf today. So those robots are simpler. They're kind of dumber. Um, they do simple things, simple tasks. And then you build a workflow or a process around them. So you say, well, the robots are only good at doing a certain set of things. So we're going to use them for the things they're good at. We'll use people for the things they're good at. And then we build our warehouse, our distribution warehouse around that. And then as new robots become available, we change the workflow to, to take advantage of those new robots. Um, and that's what the Navy is starting to do now. So you're seeing with efforts like the Task Force 59 effort and CENTCOM, uh, you're seeing with some of these integrated battle problems they've been doing recently where they're starting to take the unmanned systems that are available today, you know, the ones that are either commercially around or ones the Navy's already developed, you know, like the Mark 18 UUV that was used to go find the Malaysian jetliner. Those, those have been around for a while, repurposing those into new workflows or new mission threads to use the, the word we use in the report. Um, that approach, that bottom-up approach of, you know, building a mission thread to, to deal with an operational problem, um, is where the Navy is kind of moving toward, which is, you know, I think a good thing. And it's a, it's, it reflects the, a lot of the lessons learned from how industries approached it. This has also been uh, the Navy benefiting from how technology evolved. So when the Navy started its unmanned systems, for the most part, commercial systems were just not that good. Um, and now you've seen this uh, emergence of a whole generation of commercial unmanned vehicles that have a lot of capability. They're, they've got long endurance. They have a pretty high payload. They're pretty autonomous. Um, they can do networking with other unmanned vehicles. So the technology has also evolved, which is going to help the Navy in this bottom-up approach. Um, so the Navy doesn't have to purpose build its own vehicles from scratch, you know, like the LUSV or the medium unmanned surface vessel. They can increasingly draw upon what's available in and outside of government. Uh, and DIU, again, is a, is a good 
uh, ally in this because they're able to act as that clearinghouse that pulls in these vehicles from the commercial providers that you know are trying to get them qualified for government service. Um, so the the challenge that the Navy has though is making this process uh, institutionalized, right? So making it you've got a systemized approach for um, taking an operational problem from a commander. Uh, looking at different approaches, different mission threads, different combinations of unmanned systems uh, and manned platforms that could solve it, integrating that through something like Project Overmatch, and then sending it into the field. you got to mechanize that process and have a way of resourcing it um, that's reliable and repeatable. And that's what the Navy is trying to work through right now. Um, I want to take you uh, to another thing uh, which the Navy is trying to work uh, now uh, is uh, its undersea uh, systems. There has been a sense about the invulnerability of the U.S. submarine force, right? We have the best submarines, best crews. We're out there. We're doing it. Um, you know, nobody can match us. Uh, and you start the report off with a terrific uh, line, which is, right, air power advocates after World War I made the case the bomber will always get through and went into World War II with that assumption as well. And it proved to be devastating. As, as most of our audience know, the Eighth Air Force took the highest casualty rates of any military unit in World War II and lost more people than the United States Navy and the Marine Corps did, right. uh, ultimately. Uh, and it was because the bomber didn't always get through, or it would get through, but at very, very uh, high uh, cost to radar, uh, guided guns, better uh, fighter aircraft. From your standpoint, what is it that the U.S. submarine force has got to bear in mind? Um, right. What's the yeah. key takeaway? Right. Well, so the, you know, we no longer have this um, ability to operate uncontested inside of uh, the bastions or inside of the home waters of an opponent. So places like the East and South China Sea, uh, places like the Barents uh, up in uh, up above uh, Russia, um, these waters where um, adversaries have kind of started to treat those as their home waters, the areas they can operate with some impunity. Uh, we're used to being able to go and drive our submarines in there and not be noticed and, and be able to do, you know, gather intelligence or in wartime do uh, attacks against an, an adversary. Um, those days are probably ending. So the undersea is going to become much more contested, just like the area above water. Um, these opponents like Russia and China are both putting in seabed sensor arrays like our SOSIS arrays. They're putting in mines. They're putting in um, you know, a variety of active and passive sensors that are in the water column, not just on the seabed. Um, and they're deploying uh, anti-submarine warfare capabilities that are designed to really suppress submarine operations rather than spend the time to go and actually find and kill a submarine. Um, what that means, though, is that our submarines, which we've kind of held as the linchpin or the, the ace in the hole, you know, when it comes to any fight against China, are increasingly going to be challenged in being able to do sustained operations. And they're going to keep having to break off uh, to go run away from attacks uh, before they could come back in and continue the operation, which means, you know, China may get a leg up you know, in an operation like an invasion of Taiwan. So we have to start thinking about adopting some of the same techniques that our air brethren uh, adopted, which is suppressing uh, defenses and defeating defenses. So they're used to having to do this against air defenses. Um, we have to think about doing suppression and defeat of undersea defenses now as well. So we need to do things like jamming, uh, decoys, uh, attacking undersea infrastructure to take out sensor arrays or communication arrays, uh, and then countering mining. Um, those are all you know things we have to now do underwater as well as doing them uh, above the water, uh, which is what the Air Forces have been doing for the last several decades. Um, one of the things uh, that you mentioned, which I thought was uh, intriguing, is uh, that both China and Russia have fortified their undersea defenses. What do you mean by that? Because a lot of yeah. that is very highly classified. 
Wait, so it's it's highly classified, you know, in terms of what we have um, or what we do. Um, but um, adversary systems, a lot of those are available in the open source. There's been reporting about, um, you know, Russia, for example, has the Harmony system, which is a com combined active and passive sonar system that's on the seabed in places like the Barents Sea and the White Sea. And they use that to search the what they consider to be their bastions to look for enemy submarines. So, you know, infiltrators who are coming in to spy on Russian submarine operations. Um, then that it, it could be pretty effective. I mean, so especially active systems, we've designed submarines for the last several decades to be as quiet as possible, um, but that's all obviated if you're facing an active sensor. So if somebody's got an active sonar down there um, and it's operating at a low enough frequency to have a long range, um, that can be really challenging. And so there's a whole generation now of low frequency active sonars, including these towed um, variable depth sonars like we're putting on the US frigate, um, that are very effective and can, can, can detect submarines out to, you know, maybe even 100 miles. So certainly dozens of miles, maybe 100 miles, depending on the water conditions. So they've been very, they could be very effective in, in, in at least getting a, a target or rather a detection of a U.S. submarine. Uh, and then now you're facing the challenge of, do I continue the operation even though I've been detected? Um, and then potentially you're being attacked. Um, and a submarine commander then has to decide whether they stand and fight or if they're going to you know, run back and, and come back in when things are, uh, when they can regain their stealth and, and be more uh, survivable in the operation. Um, so that all acts to, you know, reduce the effectiveness of U.S. submarine operations. And, and since they're so important to our plans in dealing with a potential China uh, uh, active aggression, it, that could really undermine U.S. strategy. Um, do we need to worry about people putting up, um, you know, we have discussed, you and I have discussed for uh, many years, and indeed theorists have discussed uh, putting uh, weapons uh, on the seafloor uh, for deployment. Uh, obviously, the United States Navy has thought about that, right? Rockets in a box on the bottom of the uh, ocean. Uh, but our adversaries also have been talking about putting defensive weapons, automated uh, launch, right? I mean, if it's a sound pressure level that's not your own, you know, it's not your and you know where right. your submarines are. Any other submarine uh, in a in a time of war uh, can be engaged. Do we need to increasingly worry about stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. And so what I, what we see China doing is mostly looking at mines, you know, very sophisticated mines, but using mines to close off areas undersea that they don't want our submarines to be operating in. Um, because, as you said, you know, you can make smart mines that can act on based on a um, set of tunnels that they detect from the submarine. Or just detecting, like you said, a a a um, any sort of sound uh, in an area where the 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 Chinese, for example, don't think they have any of their submarines, so they can keep their submarines out of these uh, mined areas, uh, leaving it just you know that U.S. submarines will be threatened by them. So mining is really the probably the biggest threat that we're seeing uh, as we have a this you know kind of new generation of smart mines that can be very selective um, and can also be very lethal, you know, because they use uh, capabilities like encapsulated torpedoes with shaped charges that you know, can come out very quickly uh, and, you know, put a hole through your submarine um, using essentially a, a explosively formed penetrator. Um, that can be, you know, obviously extremely damaging and probably lethal to a, a U.S. submarine. Your sense of understatement is, uh, is very <laughs> modest. Uh, Brian, uh, right, I mean, if you have a single hull submarine, even if it's a nice thick hull, uh, a shaped charge yeah. is, is not something you want to uh, mess with, even though I think the point you make is the Russians do have double hulls, which, right. which does mitigate right. that uh, to a degree. 
Yes, uh, and compartmentalization. So we you know one thing: U.S. U.S. has gone with single-hulled submarines with uh, essentially two or you know two or three compartments, right. which means uh, you know a flooding casualty can go rapidly catastrophic. Which which is not necessarily the case in older generations of submarines. Uh, that's true. Uh, hey, uh, shout out to uh, five ninety three and six thirty seven right. guys. You right. had a couple more uh, compartments than Los Angeles, which is basically exactly. two, and Virginia now uh, is three on the Virginia payload right. module right. Uh, ships. Uh, right. Indeed, uh, Brian. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, keep up uh, the great work, and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much, and thank Dan as well. I will. Thank you, Vago. Great to be here. I appreciate the time. And thanks very much to our audience for joining us. We appreciate it very much. And tune in tomorrow for our Air Power program. Thanks very much. Have a great day and see you tomorrow.